All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf recording in Woodstock, New York, and joined as usual by my co-conspirator, the one and only Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hey there. How are you? Uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm actually recording from my office today if my audio sounds a little different uh, because I'm in between classes and running around. (laughs) You're a very busy fellow. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> a lot of responsibilities. You have a dog with a cone on its head and... Oh, uh, yes. My poor dog <laughs> had a little ear surgery and it's funny, Susie. not funny. <laughs> Everyone will know this who has a dog and has or an, a pet with a cone. They run into everything, sometimes I think on purpose to get your attention. But poor Susie locked herself into the basement by closing the door as, when she was trying to get out. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, the cone, the cone of shame. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. Oh, she had, because she has an ear thing, so they couldn't um, give her the, like, uh, inner tube. Exactly. So, yeah, she has to have the full-on cone to keep herself from scratching. And we have a second dog who can stick her head in the cone and lick her ear. So we had to keep <laughs> them away <laughs> from each other. <laughs> Oh, just trying to be a good friend. <laughs> exactly. Yes. You're like, oh, let me fix that for you. <laughs> Whenever I, um, when I get up in the morning, Peanut likes to, you know, lick around my eyes and my ears and mm-hmm. on my neck. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just hoping I taste sort of yummy and it's not because I'm like grimy or something. It's like, That's what right. are you trying to tell me? Okay. Yes. Digression number one. Um, oh, dog talk with Sasha and Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new show. <laughs> oh, I would, I would, I'm in. Oh, I'm come in. on. Can we do it? <laughs> it would be the most ridiculous two hour episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make that podcast. Um, all right. Some couple of things actually related to the podcast. Uh, one, I just... Yes. <laughs> I begged to be... <laughs> begged, maybe uh, <laughs> berated? No, begged. That's right. <laughs> you and I are actually recording right now, and it's not just Sasha That's and Michael right. hanging out talking. And I think sometimes we forget that. Right. And just now I realized that a microphone in my face. Okay, so <laughs> I begged people, I urged... I pleaded uh, for donations and to to support the podcast. And as I said then, and I'll reiterate, it's not to raise money, particularly we're going to be raising money from donors and and grants, and we are, and blah, blah, blah. But I just think it's, Mm -hmm. you know, an important part of being connected and involved and, and, you know, having some ownership in a way in, in the foundation anyway, you did. So thank you very much. A lot of people yes, came through and, and donated anywhere from $10 to $100. And so thank you so much. That was really heartening. And 
um, yeah, made made us all feel really happy. So thank and, you. And we got some nice comments about it too, uh, about yeah. being on board. So that was nice. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing is just the where we're we've gotten some suggestions that our forum section is too, yeah, it's too persnickety. Um, and <laughs> it's too locked in. <laughs> it's too yeah. It's very locked in. So we heard that and we're making changes. So thank you very much for caring and letting us know that it, yeah. it didn't really work that well. And and so for right now, we have an introduce yourself section that we just added. So please do introduce yourself. Other people have. And it, that's been really I should fun. do that. <laughs> yeah, you should do that. I did it. Tower did it. I know. Um, I got to do it. <laughs> you're behind, man. I am. And right. People wanted to be able to have more back and forth with each other. That's and right. So Taylor's working on that. Yeah, yes. Taylor's working on it. And um, and we got season one finally on. That's right. And when I say we, I mean Taylor got season one on, <laughs> on, the, uh, on the website. So that's there now. So yeah, and we're working very hard now on the, on the specifics and guidelines for the mentorship program, which is going to be the first initiative that we launch hopefully in a few months, working mm -hmm. hard with our fantastic board of advisors or advisory committee or whatever we call it. You can see who that is on the website as well, but wonderful group of people and the board of directors. And so we're, we're hammering all those details out now. And as soon as we've got them worked out, we will announce that and people can apply for that. And it's really exciting. Okay, so that's that's that stuff. Getting to the show. This was a wonderful episode, in my opinion. Oh yeah, with the great artist Shireen Nashat. So mm -hmm. I loved talking to her, as I think is quite evident. But what did you think? I loved it, and you know, there's something very special for me hearing from an artist that I've been showing to my students for as long as I've been teaching, and wow. uh, I loved it. And the conversation you have, I think, is is fantastic, not just for a sort of veteran artists, but people who might be just starting out. Shireen talks about ways that she keeps going, ways that she pushes through blocks and downtimes. Yeah, that's and right. Yeah. Always re-examining sort of where you are and who you are in this sort of art world and the kind of work you make. It's, it's a more of an existential conversation, but mm -hmm. it's fantastic. It's just, you know, the, the whole thing. I, I absolutely loved it. Yes. Yeah. I love talking to her. She's she's as warm as she is brilliant. And if you want to be inspired by her work ethic, <laughs> this is the yeah, show to oh listen God. to. <laughs> I know. I teased her a little bit about that. Um, she is so is prolific. It's just incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was like, Gosh, I've better I better up my game. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's like, wow, I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's just so filled. She's like bursting with ideas, and she has mm -hmm. this real. I mean, one thing that I got from talking to her was just she has so much passion for right. the creative process, for life, for other people for our, uh, other people's struggles she has she's passionate about understanding the human condition i mean these things are all mm -hmm. so on the surface and so there and and it seems to drive her to just want to keep making and expressing herself yep. and expressing ideas and she's less concerned with how things land and more concerned with just 
getting these things out there, out of her, right out of her body right. and, and out into the world. And they're going to land the way they're going to land, but she's just going to keep on working. And anyway, extremely inspiring, really incredible. Absolutely. And not surprisingly, a really interesting origin story. Uh, yes. So the, the whole thing from beginning to end, it's just wonderful. Yep. Well, before we give it away, um, why don't we get to it? <laughs> Michael, <laughs> if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Shireen Nishat. Shireen Nishat, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. I have to say, I feel so lucky um, and grateful to have worked this out and that I have this time to talk with you. It's been such an absolutely wonderful experience for me um, doing my research. And of course, I know your work. That's why we wanted to have you on. But to really learn more and more about you has just been really engaging. And it's been a real joy. So thank you so much. Thank you for um, having me. Thank you. So um, you know, we start every show instead of reading people's bios, which is so boring. Um, I can't bear it. Just ask people to tell the listeners about themselves and, and their sort of origins of where they're from and, and how they got to, to where they are today. So if, if you could do that and, and take all the time you want, your story is obviously really interesting. And so, yeah, so so. Yeah, so <laughs> thank take you. It away. Well, I'm an Iranian-born artist living in the U.S. since uh, 1978, 79, and basically, uh, my work ranges from uh, photography to video installations to uh, feature-length films, and I've recently been directing operas. Um, so I'm quite an untraditional artist, moving between a lot of different forms. And originally, I studied at UC Berkeley very unsuccessfully, I would say, as uh, I went to graduate school there and undergraduate. And But didn't quite blossom or I didn't feel that at the time, at a young age, I had much to contribute uh, to art making. So I stopped making art for, I would say, 11 years Um and I moved to New York in the 80s, and then I discovered a whole fascinating art scene and and really connected to the underground art world. And slowly, I became inspired to make art again. But I think the most important other element I need to emphasize is that being Iranian, my education at UC Berkeley coincided with the Iranian Revolution. I came to the U.S. in 1975, and the revolution happened in 1979. So part of my shortcoming at my education at Berkeley was that I was so taken back by uh, what was happening in my country, and, and soon the doors closed between Iran and U.S. or anywhere in the world, and the diplomatic relationships were cut off, and there was war with Iraq. So uh, I, I did also you know, was separated from my family for a good 10, 11 years. And my return to art making once I was back in New York was also inspired by my travel back to Iran after many, many years and meeting my family and facing the country that had transformed upside down 
uh, while I was absent. So New York and return to Iran all culminated in my urge to return to make art again. And now with a, a stronger conviction and a vision that I didn't have when I was so young at UC Berkeley. You said something really interesting in a video piece that you did for the Tate. You tell this great story of, it's very brief, but I could really imagine it as very evocative. You tell a story of having tea in your family garden as a young girl and hearing the Quranic chanting happening from afar and bursting into tears, and that you didn't know if this was because you were so moved by it or because you were scared and anxious because your family didn't pray every day, they weren't as religious. Yes. And, and you said, these emotions that built inside of me when I was young led to the kind of art that I make. Can you talk about that? I was very moved by that. Yeah. I was raised in a city called Qazvin, which is one of the most religious conservative uh, cities in Iran, the third most religious city in Iran. So in one hand, my parents, my father and mother were quite progressive and well-traveled and very modern and really dressed mostly European style. And they had a lifestyle that was absolutely not conservative and not religious. But on the outside, they were different people. And uh, of course, the school where I studied um, was extremely conservative. And uh, I remember that I was always faced with this divide between um, the world that took place inside my home and what transpired outside. And that I, I always was told that by not praying, by not going to the mosque, by drinking alcohol, by gambling, all of these, you end up in hell. And meanwhile, my family were drinking, you know, and, and, and you know, as amusement, they were gambling at night with friends or, you know, they weren't wearing the veil and they weren't going to the mosque on a regular basis. So I remember as a young girl um, praying every day at home, thinking that I had to beg redemption for my family, that they were going to burn in hell. And it was that kind of uh, mindset that we were grown up with as people mm -hmm. uh, who were caught in between an extremely traditional uh, religious um, culture versus the opening uh, of the culture to the world, to the Western culture, as the Shah at the time was really trying to Europeanize the country, introducing art and all kinds of languages and encouraging people to travel. And many people in Tehran dressing in completely modern fashion with mini skirts. Mm -hmm. and so this conflict between religious, conservative, traditional values versus the move toward a more global, more westernized idea of lifestyle was the very foundation of my upbringing. And so I really felt very conflicted as a young woman. And because I did have some attraction to religion, because most of my friends, best friends, were extremely religious. And I did really took some comfort in having an idea of faith, religion, and something that I believed in. And so I was very torn. And, and so later, when I became an artist, you could see how much religion or questions in relation to religion played a big role. And yet, outside of the Islamic subjects, my, my work is also so rooted in Persian culture, more contemporary Iranian culture that has zero interest in the Islamic tradition. And so much of my work is this conversation between the past and the present, the Islamic versus the Persian culture of Iranian identity, the, the more modern versus 
um, you know, ancient Iran and and yeah, and I really do think that one can go on, explain it in great detail, what that really means specifically. But I really do feel that has been a groundwork for my artistic vocabulary. Well, also, if you don't mind, I, I would add, you know, one word that comes up a lot when people are talking about your work or writing about it, or you're talking about it or writing about it is the word contradiction and yes. or paradox. And it, it seems to me that in a lot of ways, the philosophical or philosophical and emotional and it seems to me that so much of your work, the foundation is contradiction yes. and is inability or a disinterest in reconciling all of the contradictions that young girl felt, you know, in the garden that, you know, maybe it wasn't that you weren't sure if you were moved or scared and anxious, but you were both, you know, you were yeah. both moved by it and scared and anxious. And yeah. that is such a powerful, I mean, one of the things that, you know, if you ever have been in therapy, I have, that you learn is that, I mean, I remember learning this when I was in therapy, when I was young, getting into trouble and being sent to therapy, was that you can have contradictory feelings, you can hold them at once. Yeah. You, know, I did, you know, you can love and hate, you can be very moved by something and scared by it. So it just seems to me that the foundation of your work on an emotional and philosophical level is contradiction. It's such a good point, because uh, as a human being, I feel always so conflicted by my own different contradictory nature, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I often feel extremely uh, fragile and vulnerable and weak, but then there are times that I'm really at shock and how tough and strong I can be, especially in time of crisis, and that really is a different character that I see that I didn't know before. But if you really think more about my life, you know, I've been in the West, uh, majority of my time, but my foundation, my character, emotional uh, nature is very Iranian. I mean, just to be specific, I'm here in New York having a show at a gallery in the contemporary art world, one of the finest galleries in the world. And yet my attention is with Iran and the revolution in Iran, which has absolutely nothing to do with the art world. And I'm mm -hmm. like posting something today about a filmmaker who's gone on a hunger strike and I'm thinking about him. I'm thinking about the poor people who just had... Um, you know, uh, earthquake and are living in the freezing cold in Iran, the government is not helping them. Then I'm thinking about my show, uh, you know, the reaction. The, so this is like completely opposite poles of, and this mm -hmm. just gives you an example. And I feel like, it, you know, my character or my artwork has sort of embodied who I am as a person, even even the way I look, for example, how a part of me is quite Eastern, my makeup or jewelry that I use, but yet I'm so fascinated by minimal modern style of clothing. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I'm extremely independent and very free, yet I'm so attracted to being in places that are actually, the culture is pretty oppressive and, and very unlike the Western culture. I mean... There's everything about me that sort of, you know, cries out opposite directions. 
And I think when you look at my history as an artist, where, let's say, the work that I've done that is about men versus women, culture versus nature, you know, violence versus mysticism, inner world versus outer world, you name it, everything I make, whether it's a photograph, a video, a movie, is always created around some notion of contradiction, some notion of opposite. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. because that's the way I see the world. That's the way I see myself. That's the way mm, I understand things exist in that kind of yin and yang. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm always telling myself, all you have to do is just look at yourself and see that you know, you're, you're the definition of that kind of contradiction. And mm-hmm, every day I mm-hmm. have to remind myself of that, you know, my own imperfection, my own humanity, and that every one of us uh, lives with a demon inside of us, yet we're quite innocent and, and beautiful as beings, you know. Um, so I'm unable to see anything in one form. I guess, Mm -hmm. purely Mm -hmm. violent, purely beautiful. You know, my work are extremely aestheticized and very poetic and beautiful, but always dark and melancholic and and, Mm -hmm. and painful and extremely emotional. Tell me, I'm really fascinated about, I'm really fascinated about the hiatus that you took from, from art making after Berkeley and what exactly happened, if you don't mind my sort yeah. of probing here a bit, what exactly happened when you went back to Iran? You hadn't seen your family for 11 years. You go back to Iran and something happens to you. You wind up, I think, producing Women of Allah, yes. which really put you on the map just to use dumb art world lingo, um, but really made you quite famous. And we can talk about that series, and I do want to talk about it. But I really, really want to know, was it a lightning bolt? Yeah. Was it something that sort of dawned on you a little bit each day? But what happened? Because this is a podcast that our listeners are primarily artists, and I I, I think it's just always fascinating to, to really understand when you've had a quiet period or a period where you're not making art at all, and then you're inspired, is it, I mean, obviously it's different for each person, but how did it happen for you when, when you were in yeah. Iran? And- First, I have to explain that, you know, my work uh, at school, I would say it was quite mediocre. And I, <laughs> I'm, I'm the first one to admit it, and I'm lucky I destroyed every evidence of it. But there was this thing that didn't fit my character very well, which was um, the whole education's emphasis on working hard at school to finding your own signature work and and mm-hmm. then the rest of your life you continue to elaborate on that style or whatever is you, you're doing and you just get better at it and then you follow a career and all that. Well, first of all, I have a hard time with mediocrity. I think it's better not to participate in any field of culture with anything that it's potentially mediocre. The second thing is I don't think that artists are born talented. I think this is not something that comes from your intuition, that you're somehow are given a gift and you're going to school because that gift has to come out of your brain into the studio on some canvas. Or, <laughs> I, I really feel that art is something that you you seek and you it grows in you by uh, living a life that is full of uh, adventure, experiences, knowledge, uh, putting yourself on that edge and sometimes pain. And so, you know, as a young 18, 19, 20-year-old kids that we go to school, in principle, I have something wrong about 
you know, how many of us are that genius that we can just right. be born with that in talent. It happens. But so for me, that distance, um, and first of all, my understanding that my work was mediocre was a great, great understanding and realization. And I'm so glad that I came to that. Um, the second thing, um, when I came to New York, I worked for 10 years in a not-for-profit organization called the Storefront for Art and Architecture, where I devoted my life and time to other artists, architects, and thinkers' work. And, and that became my true education and an incredible exposure to minds and people whose work was really based on lots of research and information. Hardly anyone I met was making work that was purely intuitive. And, it, you know, it was a really enriching experience of this exposure for me. Um, so by the time came the time I went back to Iran, by then I was 30, I believe. I had achieved a certain level of maturity, um, certain methodology, certain grasp of artistic um, value, things that I cared for, the directions of art making that I really appreciated. But I was missing, I was lacking the subject matter or something that I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Once I arrived in Iran, it's not, you know, again, I want to insist and I encourage all the artists not to ever make art for career. I was there and I felt so fascinated at the same time, terrified by what had transpired in Iran during my absence, that I started to go back, you know, every year for at least two, three years. And all of this, when I came back to New York, I felt that this relationship had to somehow continue even while I was in New York. So making mm -hmm. art that reflected on what my findings were in Iran helped keep that fire alive. Even though I was now married to an American Korean man, I had a child and I was working at a not-for-profit gallery, but I had now this niche, very private one, that I could just continue to think and read and work and research about the subjects that I had faced in Iran. All of this culminated on in Woman of Allah. But again, these were not intended as an artistic move or career move. It just happened that a person saw something I was playing with and said, oh, I'm interested in showing us like you are. And I only have two <laughs> pictures, you know. And, and, and it was, I always felt that when they said, I'd like to talk to you about your work, they were talking about the storefront, not me. And some, somebody finally said, no, no, I'm talking about you. But I said, I've only made three photographs. So this was really my blessing, uh, the fact that I didn't arrive at the art world by seeking success or climbing the ladder or even any ambition because I pretty much resigned to the idea that I would never be an artist. So it happened just accidentally. And then from then on, the evolution of the work and the career just happened very organically. I mean, the work is so rigorous. So, I mean, you know, one thing I take from what you just said is the passion you must have felt and the real drive to produce this work, even though you didn't have a gallery then or you didn't, like there wasn't any exterior forces pushing you, but the work is so rigorous. And, you know, let's talk about that and explain what we mean, because, you know, it's not, they're not just photographs, they're photographs with beautiful calligraphy over the photographs. These are poems, uh, texts that 
um, were written by Iranian women poets. So you have to find those words that you want to write, you, your, your hand drawing everything. I mean, they're spectacularly beautiful, but they're, it's such rigorous work. So um, you must have had just such intense you know, inner drive to produce that. And I agree with you, by the way, 100%. I mean, I think whenever you're, you're trying to do something for the art world, it, it's a disaster. You know, you have to yeah, that's not that's not a pure place. That's there's no authenticity in that. One thing that obviously sort of goes back to what we were talking about before and contradiction and and whatnot is the text is obviously or it seems to me extremely important, but a Western audience can't read it, so it becomes just sort of part of the aesthetics, and we have an idea, but unless someone tells us what what the words are, we don't know, and so. If I sort of understand correctly, there was some frustration for you about how the work was in- interpreted. Is that right? Or Well, I have to first explain that, you know, when I first made this body of work, I honestly didn't have the audience in mind. I was just um, right. playing around with uh, kind of inventing my aesthetic, my concepts yeah. and what was true, truthful to the ideas that I had thematically being related to the Iranian revolution, the religious fervor, the fanaticism that flourished in the culture of Iran and how it impacted the lives of women, but more specifically um, how violence played a big role by the government encouraging, even institutionalizing the idea of martyrdom, which caused another contradiction where men and women who loved God and were devoted to their religion were encouraged to commit cruelty, violence, and ultimately became obsessed with death in the promise of heaven after life. And and I found this extremely contradictory uh, to the nature of a woman who gives birth and is so sensual, etc., etc., So I um, created these images that uh, really symbolically they brought the elements of the veil, the female body, the weapon, and the text, all of which were going in different directions to to create um, these narratives that uh, really raised a lot of questions more than any Mm -hmm, answer. mm -hmm. Now, the text obviously had to be Farsi text because (laughs) it was relating to Iran and my Uh, Focus was on poetry written by Iranian women, who I found quite inspiring and how, in fact, many of these ladies' uh, poetry uh, tricked off the images, in my opinion. Um, And then, you know, every element, for example, the female body, always suggesting a notion of sin, shame, uh, eroticism, and, and yet it became a sort of a contested space for politics, for religious values, traditional values, etc. So there were all these more theoretical concepts that were at play. But when it came to aesthetic, you know, I was very inspired by um, Islamic, classic Islamic art, classic Persian art, mm-hmm. the integration of text and the image as, you know, Iranians, and even in ancient times, were not allowed to um, depict any kind of spiritual, holy figures. Everything was just written or drawn, you know. And and so I was very impressed by that, how it shows in manuscripts, in Persian miniature paintings, to um, the architecture of, you know, Islamic nature. And so I felt that what I was doing was sort of elaborating a sort of a modern readaptation of 
Persian and Islamic art. So again, nothing to do with Western art or art history. Mm -hmm. But when it came time to actually expose the art to the Western viewers, uh, I did try to provide the translation, but, you know, those texts would... You know, it would mean very differently to an Iranian than a Westerner, even if you provided the translation, because right, uh, yeah. the the Western audience lacks the context that is written. Yeah, of course. It's like I always say, you know, an African art means very differently to an African to than to a Western mm-hmm. audience because the relationship is very different. However, just to point at what you mentioned, the series continued to be extremely controversial and provocative um, for Iranians and the Western audience. Some people accuse me of um, sort of endorsing the Islamic Republic and and sort of sensationalizing violence and taking their side, you know, where in fact uh, I wasn't. And in fact, I've been living in exile for a long time where they felt that I was aestheticizing violence in many ways or the fanaticism that came from that culture of the Islamic Republic. And in the West, some people embraced it, but some people also felt that it was sensationalizing or exoticizing violence, etc. But the truth is, at the time, I didn't ingrain my own point of view. I, I was just trying to simply create a body of work that raised a lot of questions, never provided any answers, and was something that maybe later, as I got to know the Islamic Republic better, Uh, I think my knife became sharper. But at the Mm -hmm. time, I was just, maybe I was romanticizing a little bit about this change in Iran, but I was not uh, romanticizing violence at all. And as you can see, some of these images remained quite relevant to Mm -hmm. um, some of the issues that we're facing in Islamic culture. Uh, But nevertheless, they became very iconic and very continue to be a very controversial, and some people, particularly Iranians, still know me from that body of work. Uh, and this is something that was made from 1994 to 1997, uh, mm-hmm. so many years later. But uh, yeah, it becomes a sort of my artistic identity for many people. Well, I think that that does happen with artists, right? Like the first thing that sort of really brings you to public attention sort of locks into people's yeah. minds. So. You are incredibly prolific. I mean, it's sort of unbelievable. You've made a number of feature-length films, as you mentioned. You've made many video installations. And then, of course, all the photography with all the hand writing on it that's just so spectacularly beautiful and precise. And just a sort of process question, but how the heck do you manage all of this work, all of this, and and are you working on numerous things at once, or do you try and not multitask um, and just focus on one thing at a time? Just very curious. Well, you know, I I often ask myself the same question: Why am I so <laughs> restless? <laughs> and and the truth is, it's not like I'm so gifted or a talent. It is it's more about again my character where. I have a hard time repeating myself over and over again. And when I started to do those photographs, such as Woman of Allah, and people began to identify me as, oh, this artist who makes these photographs and writes on it, I was like, oh my God, I I don't want to be known by that. I moved to Mm -hmm. video and I completely turned my back against my signature work, which by then was doing well. 
And then once people started to say, oh, she's the artist who makes these double channel projections. And, you know, I made many. I said, okay, now I need to move mm -hmm. on. I meant to <laughs> feature length film where I started from scratch. And uh, now I'm doing opera. The, the truth is that, you know, I, I really like to challenge myself. Uh, and, yeah, and this is in my obviously. nature. I mean, I am nomadic person, as you know. Um, but yeah. I, I find that every time I embrace a new project, but more a new form, it really, uh, I feel excited uh, as a beginner, you know, something that, you know, like a new love relationship, you need to dance around each other's mm, potentials. I need to first learn the language and then find my own mm, signature within that language. And, and, you know, it could so easily lead to failure and mediocre work. But when you're in it, the process is so exciting because just like when I was doing photography, I never studied photography. I never owned a camera. But the idea that I was in a journey that I didn't know where it was ending, it was just thrilling. But when yeah. you get to, um, and this is what it becomes very stagnating when people start to recognize you, you feel like you've reached a point where you already know where it's leading and, and there's not mm -hmm. so much excitement or an adventure. And I love the idea that I'm moving in this direction that I really don't know where it's going to. And it's just taking me and I'm responding to it step by step. And it's, you know, of course, very frightening and also gives a possibility that your audience who were faithful to you for another medium will now leave you, forget you, or dislike what you're doing now. But what does that mean for you? I, I, if I had to choose, I think I would rather fail, but continue to experiment and embrace new forms than just stay with photography or video or film. I just want to just keep moving, you know, and it, it really makes you feel like a young artist, even if you're not a young artist. And so in process, I've made some good work, some not so good work, but, but I have to say that I would never change it for anything, you know. And I want to mention something about, you know, my relationship to photography. It's really about making portraits, portraiture. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and there is nothing more powerful about capturing human emotion, soul, you know, whether it's conveyed through their gaze or the body expression, regardless how many millions of times people have captured it, you know, every time you, you get something new, something fresh. And, and that single moment where you are working with photography, that an audience could have such a profound relationship with that one image, that one image can tell the whole story. Where with video and film, you know, you need the, the help of the camera movement, the sound design, music, production design, performance, locations, uh, the pacing, the, the storytelling art. And so for me, these two mediums are demanding completely different attention. Yeah, of course. Yep. But they're also very incredibly powerful in their own means. And so if I can create one image where it possibly can move an audience to tears and then I can make a 15-minute video that could equally be impactful. Well, that's fantastic, you know, but not always I achieve that, you see. But that's the goal, is that how can you take a concept and, and translate it into two different mediums, like I did with Land of Dreams or the current work that I have at Gladstone. So that's how I set out, you know, is like, let me see how I can you know, achieve this goal. And that sometimes there's pauses in between that 
I go through this period of being lost and confused and uh, unsure of myself, unsure about the direction that I'm going, and I crash, and then I come back up, and I get excited about an idea. I forget about the past, and I move forward with confidence. But it's always like um, taking risk and taking my chances, and and really going through this kind of emotional, artistic, emotional roller coaster of having doubts and lack of confidence to the moments where you feel like. Nothing is going to stop me. I'm definitely going to go for this, regardless of, you know, what. And yeah, so it's, again, going back to that contradiction of your own nature where you have so much doubt, but yet so much confidence moving forward. Well, so let's talk about, first of all, that, thank you. That was really valuable and interesting. You mentioned Land of Dreams and <laughs> the Colossus that is Land of Dreams, and I really want to talk about it because obviously sort of a departure for you in terms of, of subject matter. I don't think in terms of what you're preoccupied with or the things you're interested in or who you are, <laughs> the the way in which you're comfortable with, with contradiction and nuance and the amount of work you want the audience to do, et cetera, et cetera. But just in terms of the most fundamental thing, which is, you know, subject matter. So instead of me talking, can you can you tell people about the whole big project that was Land of Dreams? Yeah, actually, uh, Land of Dreams was a project that for the first time translated to a collection of still photography, 110 photographs, to a set of video installation to a channel projection and a feature length film. Um, <laughs> so it was like my first. I mean, my, couldn't you have done more? <laughs> I mean, this is where I just feel you were very lazy. <laughs> well, it took a few years, but I was just wondering if it's possible for the first time that I could culminate all my interests in these three different mediums in one idea, which was about um, collecting dreams, about the, mm -hmm. the importance of dreams. And, you know, talking about contradiction, it's about the blurring of the boundary between East and West, about an Iranian woman immigrant such as myself, who's a photographer and goes door to door to American people's homes and asks to collect their dream. And in the video, she actually ends up at an Iranian colony that dubiously interprets American people's dreams. So it was also satirical and sort of pointed at antagonism mm -hmm. between U.S. and Iran. Mm -hmm. But really, for me, it was this massive interest in how in our subconscious minds, we are all the same. Our anxieties mm -hmm. and fears where they mm -hmm. live in our dreams are often projections of our humanity and the things that we fear about, we're anxious about, such as, you know, violence, displacement, war, you know, abandonment, a fear of death, you know. And this is one place that we are all the same. And I thought that was a very beautiful and poetic way of approaching the story of an Iranian woman immigrant who is trying to blend in. And in the feature film, it was even more satirical because the same actress, actually the same woman, this time worked for the American government, the Census Bureau, where they were spying on the American citizens' um, subconscious uh, minds and their dreams and collecting people's dreams to know what people are fearful about, which also very ironic. And it was really like a more futuristic concept. Um, and then in the photographs, I personally, I went in New Mexico. Everything happened in New Mexico. I photographed um, over 200 people from very distinct backgrounds, from African-American, Hispanic, white, you know, old, young, women, men, children. 
and and also asking for their dreams and all of which were inscribed and or illustrated in the photographs so it was this massive project that really um it was for me it was a breathtaking departure because was my first entry um or my first attempt to make a work that really did not take place in Iran or did not intend to explore Iranian culture but it was really the main protagonist was an Iranian woman photographer so it was really about me and i enjoyed it tremendously and you 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 did that not in collaboration but for or was this commissioned by site no. santa fe or no i i just you know i just do it and then eventually Site Santa Fe invited it because it was shot in New Mexico. (laughs) And this way, the people in New Mexico got to see it, you know. And so how did it feel? uh, Did it feel different working uh, with American? Yeah. One of, I think, making Land of Dreams, uh, the photography, the video, and the feature-length film, which, by the way, was shot during the pandemic, one of the most breathtaking experiences I've had as an artist, as a human being, and my understanding that, you know, I don't always have to make work that relates to Iran. As long as I'm Iranian, the work will remain Iranian from the point of view of an Iranian. But also I mm-hmm. was I was so connecting to the people in that region, the, whether it was Native Americans. Actually, a lot of my subjects, I forgot to say, were Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt completely at home, welcomed. And Land of Dreams, I would say, opened a new door for me where it led to The Fury, my latest work, where I can now work in the U.S., but still related to subjects that it's rooted in the Iranian culture, meaning rooted in in experience of an Iranian immigrant, you know, because I've not been to Iran for so long that I I feel Mm -hmm. that I need to open this new chapter, which is about my experience in America. Well, the um, I don't remember where I read this or heard it in an interview, but you know the understanding or acknowledgement that you have become to some extent American, yeah, just based on how long you've lived here, and yeah. that, and of course, that doesn't in any way change where you come from and how formative and deeply that's in, you know in your soul but it's interesting that you did get to that point where you sort of had that realization um in your artwork yes i was talking to someone yesterday that you know for the longest time living in the u.s i always felt like an outsider like mm-hmm. riding the subway or on an airplane going somewhere or at the airport and then now i live in bushwick brooklyn and i realized that actually you know what I'm probably more of an outsider to Iranians if I go to Iran, because Mm -hmm. this is where I've lived longest in my life. And in fact, these are my community. These are the people who obviously I see more than anyone. And that especially, for example, where I am in Brooklyn, we all look different. We all speak different languages. We have different religions. (laughs) but, But we are so at the same time connected. And I feel so close to them. And that is a revelation that it took years and years and years for me to come to terms with. I'm still very connected to the Iranian community. I'm very active during the revolution. I feel a true affinity uh, with that culture. My mother Mm -hmm. is there. My sisters are there. My nieces are there. So I I have a huge relationship with Iran. But I, I have to say that I feel a great relief. And this really comes from finally me 
accepting to make work in the U.S. that I've come mm-hmm. to understand that, my God, I can make work in this country and it's okay. I don't have to run off to Morocco, to Egypt, to Turkey, to Mexico to pretend that it's Iran. I can make work about this country and about me. And there's a lot of possibilities. You've lived in this country longer than a lot of people Absolutely. have lived in this country. People Absolutely. who were born in this country. Yeah. <laughs> and so, right. you know, this country, whether everyone likes it or not, I personally like it. This country is a country of immigrants. And so... And I wouldn't change all, it for the world, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And especially New York. And, yeah. you know, New York is, is for everyone. And that's what makes it special. Well... Thank you so much for oh, spending you. time with me uh, today. It's, it's just been such a joy um, getting to know you through my research and then getting this, this chance to talk with you. So It's so. been my pleasure, and thank you for the wonderful questions you ask, and, uh, and I hope we meet once in person. Yes, definitely. Let's, <laughs> let's do that. That would be a real uh, thrill for me. So thanks again, and, and uh, be well. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay. <laughs> Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 